Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, April 16th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we'll discuss Carlos Rodon's brush with perfection, some other early season pitching risers, and some impressive feats we've seen on the young season, including Ronald Acuna just doing things that only he and a few other players in the league could even do. We're also going to talk about a few players featured in Keith's updated prospect rankings for the 2021 first year player draft. So let's get into it. Let's start with Carlos Rodon, Keith, and even prior to the no-hitter that he threw on Wednesday night, which was almost a perfect game if it weren't for a, a late hit-by-pitch. He hit Roberto Perez in the foot with a back-foot slider. Uh, he looked really good his first time out. The velo was way up, had that three-pitch mix that we saw at the beginning of his career. Uh, what are your early takeaways from Rodon, even beyond the impressive performance on Wednesday night? Yeah, his velocity's back. His velocity's as good as it's ever been. And it's not just on the fastball, too. His slider is harder. Remember when Rodon, I dug up a tweet from eight years ago when I saw Rodon the summer after his sophomore year at NC State. Uh, and he threw what I would still consider the best slider I've ever seen thrown by an amateur pitcher. Um, he, that, that pitch and that pitcher appear to be back. That's to me, and it's an incredible story because he's had Tommy John surgery and shoulder surgery and just generally a lot of problems, right? He's had a lot of command issues and you know, many people, myself included, pointed out when he was younger that the delivery itself could be a bit of a problem for him. And now you look at where he is, and I know it's only a couple of outings, but the velocity being all the way back across the board on multiple pitches, he's throwing as hard as ever and seems to be commanding it a lot better than he ever did. And I don't know that he needs to really command it all that well, given where those two pitches are. And he has a changeup that seems to be perfectly fine. It's never going to be as important to him as the slider is. But I think it is, it's both a great human story just for him to come back from multiple significant injuries like that, that end the type of injuries that can end careers. And for him to get all the way back to where he once was, where this guy going into his junior year, seemed like he might be the first pick in the draft and slipped a little bit because he wasn't great his junior year. I think stuff had, you know, overwork and uh, maybe some delivery issues had started to just wear him down a little bit. And then his his trajectory was never quite the same. But if he's back to the pitcher he seemed to be when he was a freshman and sophomore at NC State, that is, to me, it's an incredible baseball story because we don't see guys, usually don't see guys resurface like that, regain past glory seven or eight years later yeah uh, that's that's to me one of the best parts of the story for sure you mentioned the slider that has always been fantastic the changeup looks good too like it looks like he's got a lot more consistency with that pitch than he's had in years past and I guess the broader question here when we're looking at any pitcher who's only made two or three starts how comfortable are you looking at improved command in a limited sample like this and saying, yeah, this is going to stick. This can stick. This actually is a, someone who's made some adjustments that might hold up going forward. I feel very comfortable saying, hey, this stuff, this this is his arsenal now. This is how he's probably going to continue to pitch, especially since he's done it twice. Uh, instead of, you know, if you did it just once, you could wonder, well, is it a little, you know, we saw it with Tristan McKenzie, former guest of my own on my podcast from a couple of weeks ago. McKenzie's first major league start, he threw the hardest he's probably ever thrown in his life, but he wasn't really going to hold that. He wasn't going to pitch there. Um, in Rodon's case now, we've seen it a couple of times where I feel very good about projecting forward saying, nope, this is his velocity. This is his stuff. This is what we're likely to see from him in terms of fastball slider change up going forward. I feel 
less confident in projecting out on command but from those two outings. Um, I would probably need to see a lot more than that. It's more, that is one of those factors where I, each time he does it, I feel, I feel better about projecting forward on it. Also, I'll, you know, the fact that Rodon has thrown this hard in the past makes me feel good. About, okay. Yeah. This, he can, he, I think he can continue to pitch like this. This is a pitcher. Lots of people, myself included, once thought he would become. Whereas with command, that's never really been a huge part of his game. So if he start, if he continues to show the command and control that he's shown in these first couple of starts, he continues to do that. That's great. He's never actually shown that before. So I'd want to see it over a longer sample before fully buying into it. It's a potentially huge development for the White Sox as a team with legitimate postseason aspirations. Because if you put an effective Rodon behind Giolito, Lynn, and Keuchel, you're in a good spot, you know, come playoff time, especially you're getting linked from those guys and you're turning it over to a legitimately good bullpen, which, you know, may or may not have Michael Kopech in it later in the year. Kopech ended up being the fifth starter on this team, but that looks like a playoff caliber rotation if Rodon is going to pitch like this. And it might be even if he wasn't pitching like this. Yes, I would agree. I mean, if Carlos Rodon, if this Carlos Rodon is your fourth starter, you're in pretty tremendous shape. And I will say, I thought the White Sox were a little vulnerable in terms of rotation depth. If somebody should get hurt, miss a significant amount of time, uh, or just not be effective, right? It's possible in the case like Dylan Cease. They don't have a lot of, didn't appear to have a lot of major league ready starting pitching help available to them. You mentioned Kopech, and it's absolutely possible that he will We'll see him move to the rotation at some point later this week. But I got to say, I also just wonder, given how absurdly effective he's been so far in three relief outings, where he's, I just pulled it up, six point six and a third innings, 11 punch outs, only three base runners. Okay, granted, it's just three outings, but you know, if he continues to pitch like that, they might say, at least for the rest of the season, hey, we're, we're bringing you back anyway. You haven't pitched since 2018 anyway. Why don't we just keep you here for a while? And keep you in this bullpen role. Let him continue to build confidence. And oh, by the way, he's really helping the club in that role. I mean, as good as I think he can be, if he's going to pitch like, you know, in three outings, he's pitched like one of the best relievers in baseball. I would not say Kopech would go to the rotation and then immediately be an above average starter. There may actually be a pretty good baseball argument to leaving him in the bullpen for the rest of the season, even if the eventual intent is to return him to the rotation. Yeah, two and three innings at a time could be really effective behind shorter starts, bridging the yeah. gap as they need them to. It's just pretty amazing to see with Kopech, too. If you go back to the upper levels of the minor leagues, AA and AAA especially, the walk rate was high. He walked yeah. 60 guys at AA and 119 in a third innings back in 2017, 60 walks and 126 in a third innings at AAA in 2018. He's only walked four batters in his first 20 and two-thirds big league innings so far. So I'm I'm looking at this, and I'm I'm excited about how they're using him and what he's been able to accomplish. And one thing the, the White Sox TV booth was talking about uh, during his first appearance of the year, I think it was against the Angels, he just looks more in control on the mound, just looks a lot more comfortable. It's a very hard thing to, unless you watch him all the time, to notice the difference. But uh, just seeing Michael Kopech with command gets you really excited about his future. Well, he really turned a corner, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 starts before his call up in 2018, where, I mean, there's actually like a pretty clear line where it was great stuff, great stuff, but really erratic walking too many guys and then click. And then he ran off about 50 innings or so. If I remember correctly, he only walked about 10 guys and the strikeout rate was still really high and the stuff was still off the charts, uh, including the velocity on the fastball. And I had occurred a couple of different explanations, none of which is going to be entirely satisfying other than, hey, the light bulb just went on for him. There was not a huge mechanical change, for example, but people around him said he just sort of got it. And then all of a sudden he was unstoppable. And that's why I ranked him, I think, as the maybe as one of the top two or three pitching prospects in the minors coming out of that um, coming out of that season. And you know, obviously then he got hurt and he missed 19 and opted out for 20 and people were wondering just how much he'd be able to pitch what kind of role would he be able to fill i in his case we because we saw a little bit of that improved command and control before the tommy john surgery i feel a little better about saying yeah he's going to keep throwing strikes that i'm not worried about what will happen to him when he goes to the rotation if he goes to the rotation this year 
and he hasn't had to turn lineups over or just pitch that throw that many pitches in an outing in three years. I don't know. Would they have to put him in the rotation and say he's only a four to five inning guy? Maybe he's five and dive at most. Is he more valuable in that role? Is he more valuable being utterly dominant two to three times a week in two inning stints out of the bullpen? I think the statistical case might actually argue for the latter. If you know, if you feel like going into him going into the rotation, you know you've got to limit his workload. Even if the only reason is just because he didn't pitch for two full years, missed two full seasons, which is actually more than two calendar years since the last time he actually pitched in games. Yeah, he was among the players when you tried to project innings for 2021. He was at or near the top of the list of most difficult pitchers to project because of that that long layoff. And maybe it all rides on the health of the other members of the rotation and the effectiveness of Dylan Cease, who you mentioned kind of in passing there, right? If Cease is effective in going four or five himself, putting Kopech behind him, using him on other days, that might be optimal usage. Uh, but a few other early pitching risers have caught my attention early on, Keith. I know Tyler Glasnow is good. I think most people know Tyler Glasnow is good. But he's showing us something early in a consistent third pitch. We're now seeing fastball, slider, curveball, 30% slider usage early on. That pitch has about a 10-mile-an-hour differential on it from the fastball, too. He looks completely unhittable right now. Do you think this adjustment is real, and do you think that pitch will continue to be this effective for Glass now going forward? It makes a lot of sense for the Rays to have him try to add a slider because he throws really hard. He's actually throwing harder, slightly harder on average on the four-seamer. But he's also always shown incredible ability to spin a breaking ball. His The spin rates on his curveball over the last you know, in 2021-2020, uh, just eyeballing it, it's right around 3,000 RPMs on the curveball. So... If you have a pitcher like that who throws really hard and can really spin a breaking ball, why not, right? Why not put the chocolate and the peanut butter together and say, <laughs> okay, so most co- most pitching coaches will tell you it's easier to give a kid a slider than it is to give him a curveball anyway. Glasnow already had the curveball. The only argument there is, does he need a slider? But yeah, I think he actually kind of did need a slider, especially because you know a slider isn't necessarily a changeup. It doesn't always serve the same function as the changeup, but the changeup's never really been a, a it's not a real pitch for him. He's occasionally thrown one, but he really just doesn't. And giving him any kind of third pitch might give him uh, added, I mean, it'll make him utterly dominant, I think, against right-handed hitters. And it might give him another weapon against left-handed hitters. So they're just, so they're just guessing a little bit more. And in this case, like I said, because he's got the arm speed and he, you know, he can really spin it. The slider is coming in at, I'm just looking at baseball savant, right? About 88 miles an hour with a spin rate of 2,800. That's, really good. And that pitch is probably going to be really effective. Guess what? So far, it has been extremely effective. Hitters are really not hitting it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's been lingering in the background for some people with Tyler Glass now is the way the Rays use starting pitchers, which of course got all the attention with Blake Snell in the World Series. But Tyler Glass now gets used like a regular starter. He went seven and two thirds scoreless last time out. He went six innings in each of his first two starts. When he's completely healthy, there really aren't restrictions on Glass now. And I think we're we're seeing that very early on this season. He will pitch mm-hmm. as deep into games as he possibly can. It's not five and dive for Glass now by design. Yeah, the issue with Glass now. Since he, well, really, especially since he got out of Pittsburgh, right? That just things did not work out for him in Pittsburgh. You know, some of the player development problems they had and with the Pirates over the last, you know, five plus years are, are I think, well documented elsewhere. And I don't, I don't really feel like we need to belabor the point, but he was one of those. He, he was supposed to be a lot better than that and probably a lot sooner than he was with Pittsburgh. Um, and so by him getting to the Rays, whether it's just getting away from Pittsburgh or getting to Tampa Bay, where obviously they've got great track record of player development continuing on into the big leagues, um, the biggest thing holding him back was was health. You know, he to me was the classic, you know, incredibly tall, gangly, long limbed pitcher. He's listed at six eight. I've heard people say he's actually six nine. I don't know for real. Does it matter at that point? He's really tall, <laughs> and it, you know. Lots of pitchers like that or coaches who've worked with pitchers like that will tell you just sometimes it takes a little longer for players who are built like that 
to develop the coordination required. Um, you know, I'm only five, six. It's pretty easy for me to feel, you know, it just doesn't take as long for the signals to get from my brain to my fingertips. Right. So I imagine for Glasno, it's must be significantly longer, obviously, for him to get the, all the neurological stuff lined up together. But, you know, maybe that was a factor too. And then on top of that, he's had trouble staying healthy. So, um, you know, if he's healthy, he is a top, he could be a top 10 pitcher in the league. He could be a number one starter. I mean, you think he really is a number one starter except for the health, right? How you want to categorize that? This is something I've just had problems with just speaking strictly as a writer for most of my career. You questioning, remember questioning Cole Hamels because he was hurt a lot as a prospect and then questioning Steven Matz, who was hurt a lot as a prospect and guess what? has been hurt a lot in the, in the majors. You know, people would say, why do you think Steven Matz is only like a fourth starter? It's because I don't think he can handle the workload, but I actually think he's generally pretty good when he's healthy. You know, Glasnow, I think, is one of those. You expect your number one starter to, you know, typical world, your number one starter is the guy who gets about 200 innings. Now, Glasnow may not because the Rays don't do that, but he should be able to pitch at the level of a number one starter in terms of just effectiveness while he's in the game as long as he's able to stay healthy. 170, 180 innings seems possible, right? I think you can get him mm-hmm. up to that sort of level. And maybe part of that for the Rays, depending on how things are going in the second half, it's saying, hey, let's keep this guy fresh for the postseason because we want him right. to be as healthy as possible in October when it matters the most. He has never qualified for the ERA title. And last year, the truncated season, obviously, that might be the only season where he's been healthy the entire way since he got to the big leagues, I mean. Um, so there's also a lot for him to prove in terms of ability to pitch with this kind of stuff and be able to continue pitching. I'm not saying he has to make 30 starts or, or, or he's nothing, but you know the Rays will probably do what you said. They'll probably – maybe they skip a start for him now and then and just have a bullpen game every once in a while just to try to keep him fresh or manage him the way that the Red Sox managed Pedro Martinez for much of his time with Boston where, hey, if there was an extra day of rest they could give him, they would do it. If they – you know, once or twice in the middle of the year, they might have him skip a start because they recognize the importance of having him good in September and good in October. I could see the Rays making an argument to handle Glasnow exactly the same way. There's a few things we've said about Glass now and even about Carlos Rodon that apply to the next pitcher we're going to talk about. Uh, Dylan Bundy, who dealt with a ton of injuries during his time in Baltimore. I think there were perennial questions about how the Orioles could ever possibly stretch him out like a regular starter. It just takes so long when you lose as much development time as Bundy did to injuries. But you know, since getting to Anaheim, he's been different. And this year's been even different from last year because we're seeing increased velocity from Bundy up at 92.2 miles per hour with the fastball. It's the best velocity we've seen from him since 2017. The adjustments he made last year also to the pitch mix have held up, right? We're talking about a guy who's throwing a fastball about a third of the time, you know, 25% slider usage, 18% curveball usage, and 14% changeup. That's mixing pitches really effectively. And for me, Keith, if I see a guy that doesn't have premium fastball velocity, I want that deep arsenal and I want less reliance on that fastball. So I think they've got a really good mix right now that can actually make Dylan Bundy pitch much closer to the lofty expectations that came with him years ago when the Orioles drafted him. Yeah, he was he Dylan Bundy still he threw the best pitched high school game I've ever seen. It was seven innings, he faced twenty one batters, he struck out eighteen, he gave up one hit, somebody bunted for a hit. Uh, in the fourth inning, maybe, and two or three pitches later, the catcher back picked him off first, which is exactly what he deserved for that. <laughs> um, because the team wasn't winning the game. It was a bunt really just to not let Bundy throw a no-hitter. I was like, Come on, world. Everybody here wants to see a no-hitter except you. Um, <laughs> and Bundy was 92-97 with a wipeout cutter. He had a really good curveball. He had a changeup. He had everything working. But he was pitched to death in high school. And then the Orioles got a hold of him and Buck Showalter got a hold of him and they did it more. And then he got hurt and he hurt his elbow and he hurt his shoulder and he came back and he looked pretty effective and Buck just wore him out another time. And then I really thought he'd be done because he because his fastball was gone and, and he wasn't durable. Now, last year, it was sort of the combination of hey, he was pretty effective and obviously in a truncated season, um, but he did manage to stay healthy. I will be extremely curious but I would also say I'm skeptical to see whether he can 
maintain a little more stuff. He's not throwing as hard as he used to, but probably never will again after what's going on with his shoulder. But you know, he's averaging 92 this year. He was averaging 90 last year. Not only is he averaging 92, but he's actually getting even more spin on the fastball this year. And I actually think his fastball plays reasonably well, especially for a velocity that is just average. If anything, it's maybe a shade below major league average for a right-handed pitcher. But because of his how well he locates it, and because there's some secondary characteristics on the pitch that really work in his favor, I actually think he can he can establish that fastball enough to get to the fact that he does have multiple off-speed weapons that are, I think, potentially above average pitches for him. And, you know, we, he may never be He's never going to be the Dylan Bundy we thought we were going to see when he was drafted. He was the fourth pick in his draft, and it was there's was no question he was the best high school right-hander, best high school pitcher in that draft class. I think he was actually best high school, first high school player taken maybe in that draft class. There was no question it was it was right. That was the, the that was a good call. It was a good pick at the time. But the way that he was used afterwards, I you know maybe it's pointless to regret the Dylan Bundy we're never going to get to see, knowing that at least there is some Dylan Bundy right now who is good enough to. Not just pitch in the majors, but be an above average starter. Yeah, I mean, looks like a, a top twenty-five sort of big league starter for him. It's yeah, for him, it's amazing. And for the Angels, yeah, they 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 just gave up a bunch of relief prospects for him. Some of whom will get to the big leagues for Baltimore, but that trade's absolutely a win for the Angels. And I think the Angels are one of those organizations. If we were looking at the past decade, not a lot of success developing pitching. A lot of things have gone wrong, especially on the health front for that organization with pitching. Maybe the Nationals. I think uh, that you and Britt Drilly talked about this, like maybe the worst organization developing pitching overall in the last decade or so. The Angels are in that conversation for me. Yeah. Uh, who have they developed, right? I guess Griffin Canning, uh, who who's had a lot of trouble staying healthy and he's not very consistent. And he was worked extremely hard at UCLA too. And he had medical concerns that dropped him to the second round in his draft class. And I actually think it's kind of amazing that he's not had to go under the knife since he signed, given what everybody said was likely at the time of his draft. Good, you know, great, good for him that he's been um been able to avoid the more serious layoffs. But uh, you know, he's also not been I mean, if that's the best starting pitcher you've developed in, I don't know, ten years. Is that right? I think that might actually be right, which is and that's not good when you're an organization that needs to build pitching to win around Mike Trout. They have not been able to do so under multiple regimes, too. I don't think it's necessarily pointing this at one person, one GM or one scouting director or one player development uh, uh, director, that it's just multiple multiple things. They've, they have not succeeded on multiple simultaneous tracks. Good to see them having some success with something on the pitching side after so many years of disappointment. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at a few pitchers on the NL side who have looked outstanding so far. Corbin Burns, who much like Dylan Bundy, pitched really well in the shortened season. And when we think about 2020 and the repetitive schedule, and especially being in a central division situation where you're facing a lot of the, the bottom end teams there, you get the Pirates, the last year the Royals, the Tigers, it, it set itself up for being the kind of year that you could say, okay, like you might like Corbin Burns, but last year was probably a fluke. He is off to an incredible start this year, Keith, and the cutter has changed everything for him because he has a fastball that he can command now. Uh, that was huge for him. He's throwing at 96 miles per hour right now, so the velo is up on that pitch. He's got a changeup he's using against lefties, a good slider against righties. He's got a sinker and a curveball. I mean, he's just a cheat code right now. Did you see anything like this coming from Burns as a, a possible ceiling if you kind of glue the first part of this season to what he did in the shortened one? I really liked Corbin Burns as a prospect. I had him in my overall top 25 prospects his last year of eligibility, but he wasn't throwing this cutter. And there's, I absolutely did not think he would be – he could have won the Cy Young Award last year. I think it's a pretty good argument he was better than Bauer. He just didn't pitch as much. I think he, well, he'd been delayed by a COVID thing, issue at the start of the season. I think there was maybe an oblique strain at the very end of the season, so he just didn't throw as much. But you know, pound for pound, he was – maybe the most effective pitcher in the National League last year. And it was kind of justified across the board. It was justified by his peripheral stats. It was justified by the underlying stuff. It was, I never actually thought there was anything really wrong with his four-seamer, but the cutter is better. I mean, the cutter's got slider-like characteristics at 95, 96 miles an hour. That's crazy. And he's throwing it a lot harder this year than he did last year. And I think he's got more confidence in the pitch this year, which is why you're seeing it account for so much more of his pitch mix. 
So, you know, I also, I, you know, I think Corbin Burns could be, he could win the Cy Young Award this year. He could be this year. He'd be one of the top five stars in the National League because all of the things you'd kind of expect to see are are there to back it up. I know track record doesn't always matter, right? Jacob Degrom came into came to the majors as just sort of a yeah, he's a prospect, but nobody thought he was going to be this. But it certainly gives me a greater degree of confidence projecting forward on Corbin Burns that he was somebody I'd really liked as a prospect. And then since getting to the majors, he has only improved, particularly in terms of his pitch arsenal. Yeah, I mean, for a guy that hit rock bottom in 2019 and hitters mm-hmm. were just feasting on his four-seamer that year, yep. I haven't seen a fastball get crushed like that very often uh, in in the time that I've followed this game. And it was an unbelievable turnaround for him just to do this in a, in a year, basically, one offseason. I know the Brewers thought he was tipping that year. Now, I never really know how much to make of that when it happens, but you could sort of look now in hindsight and say, well, that would explain some things. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely would explain it because it wasn't a bad fastball. It wasn't just this flat, slow fastball. It was no. finding too much of the plate and getting getting punished at what seemed like a disproportionate rate. Yes. Uh, let's talk about Sandy Alcantara for a moment. More velocity across the board, up to 97.9 on his four-seamer. He's doubled the use of his changeup compared to last season and getting a ton of whiffs with that pitch. So he's really done a good job balancing the four-seamer and two-seamer pretty evenly and then getting that changeup to be a great whiff pitch. I think Alcantara for me prior to this season, Keith, was in the same sort of bucket as a guy like Dustin May where I would watch him and I would say, why isn't he striking more guys out? <laughs> the sum of the parts is not as good as it should be. Now I think he's sort of putting it all together and getting the results that you'd expect for a guy with the weapons that he has. I will say I like Sandy Alcantara. I still maintain some skepticism. It is he's he's throwing harder. I've seen him throw 100, 100 or 101 back in the fall league as a starter. The fastball's a little true does not have great secondary characteristics and he's not throwing a ton of them. It's only about a quarter of his pitches so far this year. That might be the best formula for him where, you know, he throws strikes with the fastball. I don't know that he's going to miss a lot of bats in zone with that pitch and would feel like if he can just establish that maybe early and then go very heavy with the changeup afterwards, I would certainly feel a bit better about that because he's also never had a great breaking ball and i kind of don't think he is he just doesn't have great ability to spin the ball in the first place and this has been a problem for him since he was in the cardinal system again i remember he and junior fernandez were coming up kind of at the same time and at one point fernandez looked like he was a little bit of a head because he could pitch more he was just more advanced at in the you know, art and feel of pitching but fernandez never had a breaking ball either and now alcantara's passed him because he, he's Honestly, he's bigger and more durable, and I think his fastball is a little better than than Fernandez's is. But you know, Alcantara might this might be kind of what he is is a you know four seamer, lots of change ups, show me breaking ball. That's enough for you know it's good enough for him to throw a handful of the time, but it's always going to be a third pitch for him, and it does it to me. It limits his ceiling a little bit. I don't mean to sound like a, a I don't uh, think Alcantara is terrible by any means. Um, I don't even think he's below average but i would say you know of the guys we're talking about if you're asking which one of these guys think do i think has the greatest odds to regress a little bit from the you know two or three good starts at the beginning of the year he would be my pick for the slider in particular do you think it comes down to commanding the pitch consistently the movement profile or are both of those things issues for him uh, I think it is. He doesn't. He just can't spin the ball. He doesn't spin the ball well, and that's just always been evident, right? He was. He was kind of as a prospect. He was a bit of a more of a brute force guy. It was just here's a big guy who can throw really hard, and it gets on you quick because he gets out front towards the plate a little bit. And that's fine. Right? I like those guys, and sometimes it's sort of a little more raw material, and you get him with the right pitching coach, and they can do some things with him. But one, the one thing he's never really been able to do is spin the ball. He just does not put a lot of spin on the ball, and as a result, his slider doesn't move all that much. Not as much as you would expect a slider of this velocity for a guy with this arm speed to potentially move, and that's always going to hold the pitch back. Now, could he? Could you teach him a cutter, maybe as a Okay, fine. The, the curveball and the slider are just not really working here. But if you cut the ball a little bit, then it's probably still not going to have elite spin, but it might just be really hard. It might have a little more spin 
and come in at 92, 93. And then that kind of the best way to, to sort of, that's the best compromise among the different options for a third pitch for him. I don't, I don't know. I don't think his slider is going to be all that effective as anything more than the occasional show me pitch. That said, you can be an effective big league starter as a fastball changeup guy. It is way easier to do that than to be an effective big league starter as just a fastball curveball or fastball slider guy because the, that latter category of guys, they tend to have issues with, uh, they tend to have large platoon splits. They have issues with hitters on the other side of the plate. Whereas a good changeup guy, guy with a good changeup and good feel to use it, will have an easier time getting hitters out on both sides of the plate. Yeah, it's a better weapon to use against lefties in his case. So I think that does give mm-hmm. him a little more chance to to hold his own, even if that breaking ball doesn't continue to develop. You mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, talking about Carlos Rodon throwing the best slider you've ever seen in person, I think is how you described it. Yes, uh, from any amateur player. Yeah, from any amateur player. So there are some moments, I, I imagine, that as an evaluator, you go to a ball game almost every day when things are normal. You, you know, You could be in a situation like that. And you see something that makes you just kind of perk up in your seat, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we all got to see one on Sunday Night Baseball watching Ronald Acuna beat out a well-hit ground ball to short. Mm-hmm. You don't see that from a right-handed hitter. And it's not even the most impressive thing he's done to begin the season. He's cut his <laughs> strikeout right in half. He's showing a ton of power. He's playing at this level He's already in that conversation for best player in baseball, but he looks like right now he's playing like the guy that's convinced that he will prove to everybody, I am the best player in baseball. It's not a mm-hmm. debate. It's me over Soto. It's me over Trout. That's how he looks right now, and it has been so fun to watch in the early weeks of the season. I think he was my MVP pick last year, and I'm wishing I could just kind of roll that over <laughs> since it was a half season. Funny thing about that play, too, I haven't seen Somebody must have mentioned this somewhere. I just haven't caught it, but... Didi Gregorius was the shortstop. Didi Gregorius is a good shortstop with a really good arm. He double clutched. And that was it. It was all he had. Not that Acuna knew he was going to double clutch. He just, Acuna just ran like hell out of the box and good for him. Um, you don't necessarily want to do that 100% of the time, but he picked his spot. And the moment that, I don't know if Didi saw him running and that's why he double clutched. If, if he was just having a hard time getting a grip on the ball, but that was all the window that Acuna needed potentially to, to beat that out. And, you know, to your, yeah, I think the implied question there is, you know, is he the best player in baseball or at least the best player in the National League? Let's say, you know, Mike Trout just sort of has that a bit on lockdown. But is Acuna the best player in the National League right now? I mean, that's a pretty good argument. He's right now, if you're asking me, my, my preseason NL MVP pick was Fernando Tatis Jr. He's hurt. We're hoping he's going to be back soon, but he's hurt and he's losing time. He's losing production. Uh, if you're giving me the opportunity to change that pick, would I switch to Acuna? Yeah, I probably would because Acuna's gotten he's gotten more playing time, and he was one of the I don't know how many guys I really considered three or four. That's Soto, Acuna, Tatis Jr. It's probably it. You know, somebody else could come out of left field, no pun intended, and <laughs> potentially win that. That happens all the time, but. Who were the guys I seriously thought about saying, well, who do I think is going to win NL MVP? That, that was them. That, that, to me, that's the those are the candidates. Yeah, he's laying the groundwork for that type of season for sure. Uh, seeing a strikeout rate cut in half over a couple of weeks, I mean, it's still, again, small sample, common refrain on all the baseball pods and every baseball conversation you're going to hear this early. Do you believe that he's made some real adjustments that are going to enable him to keep that number down? Maybe not as low as it is early, but lower than it's been for his career. Is it 26% for his career? I mean, he's so young. He's 23 years old with almost 1,500 big league plate appearances racked up already. Where do you see that number ending up for him? Do you see a significant improvement from Acuna in that stat when we look at the end of the season numbers? That wouldn't surprise me because he's always had a fairly short swing and just in terms of his path to the ball. I remember seeing him and Austin Riley together and they were just out of rookie ball in uh, on the backfields. They were still training in Orlando. So this is a while, obviously this is quite a while ago. And it's funny because Riley was, I think, maybe a little bit more of a highly touted prospect. He'd certainly been paid more, right? Acuna signed for a hundred grand. I think Riley got in a seven figures out of the draft. And, you know, Austin Riley's never had great bat speed. You could not have drawn a starker contrast between the two. They think they were batting Acuna first and Riley right behind him. You watch Acuna, it's whoosh, you watch a Riley. Sorry, he looks like he's swinging underwater by comparison. And I actually thought 
at the time, it was, you know, Cunha's got a, he's taking good at bats. He's got a pretty good idea at the plate. But remember, that was the year that he went A ball, double A, triple A. And so suddenly he was in the majors way sooner than folks expected because uh, the Atlantis GM at the time, John Copalella, thought this kid's way more advanced than people are, are catching on. And if we keep moving up, him up and keep challenging, I feel like you and I talked about this with someone else. You keep challenging him with promotions, challenging him by having him face a better caliber of competition that he will essentially rise to the occasion when he continues to move up. And so it would f- sort of fit that same career arc to have him continue to make some of those improvements that other players just make in the minors. He is continuing to make some of those improvements than in the big leagues in terms of, for example, being more patient or putting more balls in play or just making generally better swing decisions. You know, now that said, he's basically not swinging and missing at any non-fastballs this year, and that's probably not going to continue. Like he's going to swing and miss some breaking balls and some changeups over the course of the season. I'm sure that the strikeout rate will come up a little bit, but I would, I'd be more comfortable casting this an improvement in the contact rate this year, an improvement in the walk rate this year, as both parts of a longer-term trend of Acuna being somebody who was obviously very good the day he got to the big leagues, but still had a lot of improvement and development ahead of him that didn't happen in the minors because he got to the majors so fast. Speaks to an incredible talent to come up and be that good, but still have this much room to get better. And I think I've tried to I've tried to appreciate what amazing players are doing more often instead of just kind of shrugging it off and this is probably just most broadly defined for me the mike trout effect where it's like oh it's just it's trout I, i'm more in awe of some of the things i'm seeing from great players now and i think i'm in awe of what acuna is doing at the moment uh, let's talk about byron buxton for a moment because he has cut his strikeout rate down early in the season walking a bit more and continuing the trend we saw in the shortened season of providing more power we're now talking about a guy who has 18 home runs in his last 48 games i thought the best case outcome for Byron Buxton or seeing him in the big leagues for a couple of years, Keith, was that he'd have a peak maybe similar to Carlos Gomez. Gold glove caliber defense, free swinging approach, maybe like a low 20s home run season at his peak, 35 to 40 steals. Really good player, right? But it was going to take him a while to get there. And he's really kind of changing expectations with what he's done going back to last season. Is this who Buxton is going to be going forward more power up front still going to bring speed still going to bring that great defense but it just seems like his approach is maturing quite a bit it's funny he uh i can't believe this is right <laughs> he drew two walks last year yeah he played 39 games because of course and i love byron buxton but he, of course he was hurt for part of last season he had 135 135 plate appearances he drew two walks and he punched out 36 times, but he had 13 home runs. So he had a hilarious triple slash line, 254 average, 267 on base percentage, still looks like a typo, 577 slug. Like, how is that sustainable? Well, I guess it doesn't actually have to be sustainable. He's already matched his last season's walk total in nine games this year. He has two walks. Mm-hmm. Never were two walks so much cause for celebration. <laughs> um, and he is striking out less. You know, he's talked a lot. I feel like we had something on The Athletic. Uh, maybe Betsy Alfan had something in the Star Tribune. I feel like I've read a couple of pieces uh, of him talking about his improved approach, about being more confident, about ironing out some things where um, – about him ironing out some things at the plate where he was, um, you know, changing. He said she added a leg kick earlier in his career he'd had some mechanical inconsistencies he was struggling with some timing stuff and that yeah and he just sounds like a different person he sounds much more somebody who's in command of what he's doing at the plate finally has some ownership and really understands his body and his mechanics a lot better and i feel like that um you know, that dovetails with what we're seeing on the field where the at-bats are just, they're better. They're better. He's getting himself into better counts and he's finding pitches to drive. So, and I will say this, I saw Buxton as an amateur. I thought he'd come into some power. I don't know exactly. I, I don't know what exactly I said. I thought his power peak would be, but I did not think he was going to be a single digits home run guy with lots of steals. I, I know I thought he could be a 2020 type guy. I don't know if I ever actually said I thought he could do more than that, but he had size, bat speed, and enough loft in the swing to potentially um to potentially be able to to come into some power so i'm 
I'm not that surprised to see that, to see really any of this. I should correct myself. I said Betsy Elfand was with the uh, Star Tribune. She's actually with the Pioneer Press. Minnesota still actually, small claps, still actually a two-newspaper city. We need more of those. Yeah, I'm with you there for sure. And I think with uh, with Buxton, too, physically, you could just see his shoulders, upper body is stronger. I think that goes back maybe even two seasons now where the player he was when he came up, that body isn't quite the same body he's carrying now as a, a 27-year-old. So I think that's probably helping unlock a little more of that power. And maybe helping him stay healthy, that he's just more built. Like, he was so lean. I remember seeing him that time. He was a, an amateur. I went to his high school in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. Uh, and I walk in, and he's just like in a t-shirt and shorts. Oh my God, it looks like Eric Davis. Who, you know, we just don't get those body comps. But at players who look like that, who are athletic like that, unfortunately, we often lose them to other sports. And to walk in and see somebody who was, he was lean. He was, he was like a teenager, right? He was like a teen, one of those teenager, I can just play all the sports. You just give me a sport and I will be the best immediately, even if I've never played it before. He was that kind of kid. Um, but, you know, it looked like he had physical projection, that he would get a bit stronger and that he could get some more good good weight, good muscle on him. What I certainly didn't foresee at the time was that that might actually be a part of him being better able to stay healthy throughout a 162-game season. We'll see. We'll see if he manages to do that. He has, you know, it feels like we talked about a couple of these guys. He has qualified for the batting title one time in his career. 2017 uh, was the only time in the four full seasons he's played four times he's played for a twins team in a 162 game season it's the only time he's even played in 100 games himself so hopefully this is the year that he actually breaks that little stretch too and gets to 500 plate appearances again yeah i think buxton's been plagued by a combination of what some people would describe as being injury prone but also being accident prone right you think about his first game at double a it was a scary scene that collision that he had right multiple concussions now uh i think about like soft tissue stuff that happens and that could be more that's injury prone for me right you, you suffer mm-hmm. a lot of hamstring strains or oblique strains okay you can put an injury prone label on that being concussed in a collision in the outfield that's an accident following yeah. the ball off your ankle and missing time that's an accident getting hit by a pitch and breaking your wrist or your hand that's an accident and sometimes when those two things come together when you've been on the wrong side of both your reputation or your inability to stay healthy we kind of overcorrect on that. We say, oh, this, ne- this will never happen. It's like, well, no, it could happen. If the, if the accidents stop, that might be enough for Buxton to get through a season mostly healthy or even completely healthy. A uh, common thread, by the way, on these players from Sarah Langs at Slangs on Sports uh, on Twitter. Three players are currently 90th percentile or better in both hard hit rate and sprint speed. Of course, Byron Buxton, who we just talked about, mm-hmm. Ronald Acuna, and Mike Trout, because... Why wouldn't Mike Trout of be? Of course, there? yes. <laughs> Who else? Yes, would be I saw player? somebody say something about could Mike Trout be even better this year? No, stop that. What will happen is he will be better, and ten other players will have their best season, and we'll talk about all ten Damn. of those players yeah. a lot more than we talk about him because yep. that's just what Mike Trout has been to this point in his career. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Uh, let's talk about your latest piece, the top 50 prospects in the 2021 first-year player draft class. I want to start with just a simple question. If you were in the position of Ben Charrington, if you were in his shoes, if you uh, were making the decision for the Pittsburgh Pirates with the first overall pick, 
who would you take? Would it be Jack Leiter? He's atop your ranking, so I assume if it were your call, that's the direction you would go. Uh, but why Jack Leiter? Yes, um, I would take Jack Leiter. Uh, the only hesitation I would have is, uh, nope, I certainly don't talk to anybody about bonus demands of players. And you know, if you pick first, you pick first in every round. If they decided they could maybe do better overall and take Jordan Lawler, who's the second player on my draft board, but that would allow them to get a much better player when they pick again, which I think is 37, possibly, right around there. Uh, consider that. They should absolutely consider that. And there's still a lot of baseball left to be played before the draft is three months away. So they should continue evaluating multiple candidates for that first pick. But I think Jack Leiter is the guy. And I do think that's who they're going to take. If the draft were today, I believe they would take Leiter. He is the best overall prospect in the draft class, offering the best combination of probability and some ceiling. I think he's probably a number two starter in the end. I did write in the piece today, I don't think he's a future ace like Garrett Cole or Steven Strasburg, who were also number one uh, overall picks. But I think Leiter has a very, very good chance to get to the big leagues and be a valuable big league starter and to do so in fairly short order. And then big, biggest reason is that he's got a fastball that just really plays. It is a high quality mid 90s ish fastball. When you get him on the right day and he lands that breaking ball, it's at least an above average pitch for him. He's got good feel. I think the delivery works. I do think there's a little development. He is not a guy who would pitch in the big leagues, say, later this year. He could probably use a year or so in the minors, which is kind of typical for the best college players, whether position players or pitchers, to spend at least about 12 months between draft date and when they're making their big league debuts. And in Leiter's case, if he goes to Pittsburgh, maybe they decide he doesn't need to make his debut until 2023 because there's no real reason to bring him to the big league sooner. And maybe that gives him some more time to work on things. But I think in in a more general case, he could be in the big leagues in 12 to 14 months and start to contribute value. And I think his his floor is really high in terms of his probability of just getting to the big leagues and being a starter. It's really high. And I, I said at the top of the piece, it's not a great draft. So this is a draft where if I picked first and I got lighter, I would walk away and say, we got a good big league starter. Not just an average guy. I think we got better than that, but we know we got something. And this is just, I would rather that feeling than the fear of, yeah, we took a guy who might have a little more ceiling, but the floor is essentially zero. Okay. So the strength of this draft class makes it less likely to take Lawler with the hope of getting you know, a first round talent with that second pick, right? Just because of the way the class comes together. Yeah. And it's, it, it's riskier too, because Lawler, high school shortstop uh, from the Dallas area, there you're already taking, you're going for some ceiling. And and I know scouts who think he should go one, just independently who think that's the best player in the draft. And I'm not necessarily disputing that. I'm thinking in terms, I'm trying to think a little more holistically too about what is the you know upside and downside with each player, associated with each player. But in Lawler's case, if you take Lawler at one, even if you get a, a good deal, my concern would be you know, you're already taking on a pretty substantial amount of risk there. Do you want to add to the portfolio of draft picks by taking another really risky player, which is typically a high school player, uh, going over slot with your next pick. Because you couldn't take Lawler. It's unlikely you take Lawler and turn around and get, say, a college player you really like with that next pick because this college crop is just not that great. Um, it's particularly bad in college position players. And actually, the college right-hander crop that looked pretty good about two months ago hasn't lived up to it. A few guys have come up but a lot more guys have gone the other direction, either gotten hurt or just really underperformed so far. And so this class is just, it's not great. I was more excited about it two months ago, but then the kids actually started playing. And just about two months ago, you had Aaron Fitt on the Keith Law Show to talk yes. about the college class. And at the time, Lighter versus Kumar Rocker, teammates at Vanderbilt, that was more of the debate. And it seems like that's less of the case now with yeah. Rocker's velocity being down in his last few starts. Yeah, and Lighter being so dominant. And I'm not burying Rocker. I know some people are, are thinking something seriously wrong and it's too speculative for me. And Rocker has had some little dips in his velocity before um, that turned out to not be serious. But I kind of preferred Lighter to begin with. I thought he was a better pitcher, just better feel. Uh, he did have the better fastball in terms of how it played. And I just think Lighter is a, he is a, 
bulldog competitor. And there's a couple of those guys, Dylan Smith at Alabama, who's on my, on my ranking. He gets that too. Just an extremely fierce competitor. And I like Kumar Rocker. I don't think he has quite that characteristic, quite the same as lighter or as Dylan Smith for that matter. Still a lot of, of spring ball to be played. A lot of high schools haven't even started their season yet, as you pointed out in the piece. So everything is still subject to change, but who's moved up the most in your rankings over what we have seen so far this spring? Yeah, quite a few. There were a lot of changes in five weeks, which is good, right? I mean, it's there. It means everyone's playing and we're getting new looks and we're getting evaluations. And so I mentioned Dylan Smith from right-hander from Alabama, kind of a converted position player. Really interesting because he is a college right-hander who kind of still has upside. He's physically, he still has projection left and, and that's physically and then, and, and as a pitcher. Um, where I think he's still on the upswing. And there are going to be teams that say, no, 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 if we're taking a college pitcher, we want a guy who's more polished. But I can tell you, there are a couple of teams already looking at Smith and saying, that's pretty good get late in the first round, right? We could, we, you know, that might be a guy where if there were another, if he had another year, he's going in the top 15, say. And if we get that guy 25 to 30, we, you know, might feel like we stole something a little bit. Uh, also, two position players I'll highlight. So the best two position players in the college crop are Henry Davis, the catcher at Louisville, who I'm hoping to see this weekend. Um, and uh, he's moved up. I think he is the best college position player in the class. I think he would go first if, uh, again, if the draft were held today. And Sal Freelich, the center fielder at Boston College, who is a little undersized, but he's proven he can play center field, he can really run, he can really hit. He's very hard to strike out. He's showing some power this spring. I have my doubts whether that's going to be a long-term part of his game, but he's hitting the ball hard, and I will take that. To me, that's okay, I don't think the home runs are necessarily going to last, but the fact that he's making this much hard contact is, to me, a pretty big positive. Are we talking Nick Magical power or a little more no, than no, that? No, nobody has that. I don't rank guys with that little power. <laughs> no, I feel bad for Nick Magical sometimes. Nick Magical hit three singles last night. <laughs> he could hit. Hey, well, he could put the bat on the ball. Yes, that is, you know, that's better than the alternative. Yeah, um, you know, but Freyla can do that and plays a skill position really well. And has a little more thumb. And that's why, I mean, both Davis and Frelick are going in the top 10. That Rocker, Leiter, Lawler, Davis, Frelick, uh, Gunnar Hogland at Ole Miss, Marcelo Mayer, uh, in a high school kid in California. They're all going in the top 10. If the draft were today, they all go in the top 10. After that, you know, if I picked eighth, I would be like, what the hell just happened, right? I don't, because uh, you know that's going to be like one through seven in some order. They're all going to be gone. You're going to be staring at tier two. And it's not that tier two is bad, but it really sucks when you're the first team to pick in tier two. And you're like, but I wanted a tier one guy. <laughs> yeah, the board doesn't run the way you want it. And you have to kind of break the seal on that next group of players. That can be a difficult spot to be in. Well, be sure to check out the full piece, the uh, top 50 for the upcoming first year player draft. It's Keith's piece on the site. The athletic.com slash baseball show gets you a subscription to the athletic for just $3.99 a month. We have to go. Before we go, I should tell you to rate and review this podcast if you're enjoying it and tell a friend about it since we're new. We'd really appreciate it if you took the time to do that. If you want to hear more from Keith, you should listen to this week's episode of the Keith Law Show. This week, Keith talked to Dennis Lynn from The Athletic about the Fernando Tatis Jr. shoulder injury, Joe Musgrove's no-hitter, and some of the changes that he has made since getting in San Diego, uh, and all things Padres, really. So be sure to check that out. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and the Fantasy Baseball podcast that we do as well. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I'm at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. 